How about now? <laughs> My mic was on, but that little mute button was... <laughs> I blame it on Daryl. There you go. Well, I just said something really important, so if you missed it, um, no. Good you're together. Good to be together. Hey, I want to start this morning by asking you a question, and it's kind of an odd question, and really, it's a question that's kind of geared for everybody that's like 18, 19, and older. And if you're a lot older than that, you might have to use your memory a little bit, but here's my question. Have you ever had anyone break up with you? Uh-huh. Anyone? Have you ever had anyone break up with you? Don't raise your hand, but uh, yeah. You know, I've had a lot of girls break up with me in, in my lifetime. In fact, I got to thinking, with the exception of Martha, <laughs> I guess every girl I ever dated eventually broke up with me. You know, I have heard all the breakup lines. I had one girl tell me once, Tim, I think it's time we take our relationship to a previous level. <laughs> you know, I, I see what she did there. Another girl told me, um, we need to cancel our gym membership because we're not working out anymore. (laughs) One girl once told me, I'll always cherish my initial misconception of you. (laughs) Or, if you take the L out of lover, it's over. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's harsh, isn't it? Very harsh. No, I I haven't heard all of those. Not all of them, but uh, I have heard some of those. And maybe you have too. No, maybe you've heard someone tell you, it's not you, it's me. Which, of course, means it's you. You Or maybe you've heard someone say, I just need my space. I need my space. Which means I need to make sure you're not in my space anymore. But, you know, we talk about space, and we struggle sometimes to make space in our lives for other people. But the real problem comes when we struggle to make space in our life for God, and that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning, making space for God. Sometimes we don't do that very well, and it's not intentional, and it's not deliberate, But we've just got so much going on in our lives. Our lives are so busy. They are so hectic that we become very protective of my space. And I put some pretty concrete boundaries around what my space is going to be. And I divide my time and my energy into all those things that are urgent. All those things that have to be done. My job, my deadlines, my commitments. So many times I don't have time. And I don't have space for the things that are really the most important. So many times we we don't immerse ourselves in God's Word. We don't take the time to pray, not deep prayers. We don't put in the time or the effort for those soul friendships. We don't volunteer. We don't serve. We don't give. Is it because we're bad people? No. We're good people. We're just really busy, good people. And we haven't intentionally created space for God. Now, two weeks ago, I focused my entire sermon on one word, the word yes. You remember that? Yes. Thank you. Um, And then last week, 
On Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I focused on the word, wow. This morning, I actually want to focus my lesson on another word. And this wasn't supposed to be a sermon series, but it sort of is working out that way. My word for today is, no. And really, I have some of you to thank for this direction, because two weeks ago, several of you came up and said, that was a great sermon, but Tim, there are times when we have to say no. And of course, you were exactly right. Uh, there are times when we have to say no. We especially have to say no to things that remove us or hinder us from making space in our lives for God. Now, no is actually a really important word. It's actually a very freeing word. It can be a very liberating word. It can help you set boundaries. You know, there was a time in your life when you loved that word. In fact, there was a time in your life that was your favorite word. Remember when you were like two years old? Man, two-year-olds, they love that word. They, they use it recreationally, right? <laughs> Clean your room? No. Eat your peas? No. Share your toys? No. But then you learn that people like you better if you say yes sometimes. And you actually like people better if they say yes sometimes as well. But saying no when we need to, or not saying no, by not saying no when we need to, that has the potential to create some tremendous problems in our lives when we don't say no. Because we say yes to bosses and schedules and meetings and obligations. We say yes to, to burdens. We say yes that... We're going to think yes to things that we're going to buy that we don't really need. We say yes to people that we don't really know and don't really like being around very much anyway. And eventually our lives are just crammed full and we become these decent, respectable, exhausted, worn out, resentful, godless people. We need this word, no. And when you think about it, the Bible is full of some pretty famous no's. You think all the way back to the book of Genesis. A guy by the name of Joseph. He finds himself in a bad place. He's, his life has really turned out to be pretty disappointing. And he's probably in a place where he thinks, I could use a little bit of pleasure in my life. He is invited into a relationship by a very connected woman, but it's a relationship that Joseph knows this isn't going to honor God. So Joseph tells this very connected woman, no. Because Joseph knew his identity, and Joseph knew his mission. And then there's three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were invited to worship an idol. Now you and I, we're invited to worship idols all the time. We don't call them idols anymore, but we're, we're constantly invited to worship idols. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew their identity. And they knew their mission. And they said, no. And one of the great no stories in the Old Testament involves a guy by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around that great city. And what he's confronted is with are, are people that are trying to distract him. People trying to interrupt him. People trying to get him to stop the work. This is what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah says, I'm doing a great work. I cannot stop to come and meet with you. 
which, by the way, is a great verse. You need to underline that verse in your Bible. A lot of clarity there in Nehemiah 6.3. Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. Four times Nehemiah says, no, 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 still no. Because Jeremiah or Nehemiah knew his identity and he knew his mission. And when you know your identity and when you're clear on your mission, we'll become pretty clear on when we should be saying no. But you have to know who you are. And you have to know what you've been called to do. You've got to know when to say yes and when to say no. And no is actually, it's a great gift. You know, the, the word no, it's a great gift. And I'm not talking so much about good versus evil or right versus wrong. I'm talking about saying no to something that's good so that we can say yes to something that's better. You know, good is always the enemy of great. That's why we love the word yes. Now, we were created to say yes to God. We talked about that. But again, our lives get so crammed full of stuff, so overwhelming, that the thought of adding one other spiritual activity is just like too exhausting for us. And it just seems like one more thing to check off the list and to, you know, for our spirits, it's already sort of crushed. Somehow we've got to make room for the things that really truly matter. And of course, the good news is that there was a man once who had some of the most powerful, some of the most creative no's in all of history. His name was Jesus. And interestingly, his ministry doesn't start with a great yes. His ministry actually starts with three great no's. And what I want to do this morning I want to sort of walk through the temptations of Jesus that we find in Luke chapter 4. And I, I know you know that passage. I know you know that story and that circumstance. But I want to remind us of just how much application there is for us as we think about the way Jesus was tempted in Luke 4 and the way Jesus responded to those temptations. So here we go. Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just been baptized. Chapter 4 begins this way. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man does not live on bread alone. When Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, as he inferred, he's quoting scripture. In fact, in every one of these temptations in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is going to quote scripture. There's a sermon in itself right there. Scripture is a pretty good thing to have in your heart when you're tempted. Pretty good thing to use when you're tempted. Uh, here in this passage, Jesus is actually quoting Moses from back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses, talking about God to the, to the Israelites, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
The Israelites uh, back here in Deuteronomy, they had just come out of Egyptian slavery. They were slaves in Egypt. And as slaves, their job was to take care of everything that Egypt wanted. Their job as slaves was to build storehouses and to fill those storehouses with grain. And the message that they received from the Egyptians was, you can never have too much because you don't know when it's all going to go away. So we got to keep having more and we got to keep getting more. But God wants his people to understand that God say, no, I'm going to provide for you. I want you to trust in me. I don't want you to trust in yourself and your own ability. Now, Satan is still trying to convince us that we can't really trust in God to do what he said he would do. And that somehow we've got to kind of figure it out on our own. And Satan is still tempting us the same way he tempted Jesus. He's just wording it different. Now Satan's message is, you are what you have. We've all heard that message, right? You are what you have. The world will try to convince you, you do live on bread alone. Life is a matter of what you can acquire, what you can get. And whatever you can acquire, it won't be enough. You're going to have to get more. We are told we should fulfill every appetite that we have. We should satisfy every desire that comes along. That we can define ourselves by our stuff. Our nice house, nice car, nice clothes, nice job, nice bank account. That's what defines you, the stuff that you have. Everyone hears that voice. You might remember the old story about the man who was talking to his wife one day and he said, sweetie, you, you've got to quit spending so much money on these expensive clothes. We just, we can't afford it. She said, yes, I understand. I'll do better. The very next day, she comes home with another expensive dress. And he said, I thought we talked about this. We just can't afford for you to keep wear, or buying these expensive clothes. She said, well, I didn't mean to buy it. But I was walking by the store and I saw it there and a little voice said to me, just try it on. You don't have to buy it. Just try it on and see how you looked. So I went in and, and I tried it on and I looked at myself in the mirror and that same voice said, wow, you look fabulous. You got to buy this dress. And her husband said, but dear, I thought we agreed that when you heard that voice, you'd say, get behind me, Satan. She said, I did. And he did. And then he said, looks pretty good from back here too. That is really old. <laughs> but it's right, right? We hear that voice all the time. Whatever the bread alone might be for you, whenever we live that bread alone mentality, there's never enough bread. We're never satisfied with the amount of bread that we have. Or we see other people and their bread looks a lot better. So I want more bread. And I want better bread. I want nicer things. The world will tell you, you are what you have. And if you don't have as much, you're not as much. And we've all heard that voice, haven't we? All the time. You need to realize, you know, it's okay sometimes to do without some things. To, to say no in order to, to make room for God. That God does provide for what we need. Jesus says himself in Luke chapter 12, Beware. Don't be greedy for what you don't have. Real life. That's what we want, right? That's the life we want. We want the life that Jesus is giving. Real life. Real life is not measured by how much we own. 
And then David says in Psalm 34, even strong young lions sometimes go hungry. But those who trust in the Lord will never lack any good thing. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us, your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs and He'll give you all you need from day to day if you live for Him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. We just sang that song, right? Here's something that, um, that I found a little bit interesting, a little bit sobering as well. It surprised me when I read it. It might not surprise you. The average American looks at their phone 150 times a day. I found that hard to believe. I mentioned that to my daughter, and she said, well, I thought it'd be a lot more than that. But you, you know it's true. And I don't know what the number is, but it's a lot. Because take a look at any group of people. How many people do you see with their head down looking at their phone? What would my life look like if I could train my mind and I could train my body to turn toward God 150 times a day? What would your life look like if you could discipline yourself to just turn toward God 150 times during the day? The temptation is to believe you are what you have. The practice is, it's okay to do without some things. Here's a second temptation. Verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And the idea here is that, Jesus, you can have the most impressive resume ever. You, you can have such amazing powers. You could, you could use them to do things that have never been done. Satan's tempting us the same way. He's, again, he's just using different verbiage. Here's what he tells us. You are what you do. You are what you do. Worship your work. Sacrifice your heart and your soul and your life on the altar of achievement. And that first temptation is you are what you have. Next temptation is you are what you do. And if you don't do much, you're not much. And the practice around this is sometimes, sometimes we have to say no to doing more. And we're not comfortable with that because we're sort of wired to be doing more. But there are times in our lives when we have to step back and actually do less. And the Bible has a couple words for that. There's two words that I'm thinking of and, and they don't even mean the same thing, but they do both mean kind of slowing down and refocusing and redirecting. One of those words is fasting. We're talking about that in our nine o'clock Bible hour. Uh, the other word is Sabbath, both with the idea of, I'm going to step back, I'm going to slow down, I'm going to redirect my thoughts, I'm going to redirect my actions, I'm going to focus on God. Just have a period of time when I'm not working, 
when I'm not being important, when I'm not being amazing, when I'm not trying to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders, just a chance to slow down and experience the uninterrupted, uncluttered, peace-inducing presence of God. You know, God says in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And then Paul wrote in Colossians 3, since you've been raised to, new, to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at God's right hand in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about things down here on earth. And Jesus certainly understood the importance of stepping back and being still and focusing on God. Matthew 14, I've got on the screen. I could have put a lot more on. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was still there alone. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus begins his ministry, he goes into the wilderness, driven by the Spirit. And for 40 days, he doesn't give a talk. And he doesn't draw a crowd. And he doesn't recruit a disciple, and he, he doesn't train a team, he doesn't write a book, he doesn't heal a disease. He fasts. He spends 40 days focusing on the Father. And we are so programmed to believe you are what you do. Sometimes it's hard for us to admit it's okay sometimes to doing less, because sometimes doing less actually leads to doing better. I know a lot of you are familiar with the book Simple Church. came out several years ago. Now, it's a good book. But the whole premise of the book is there are things that we need to do less of, things that we've always done that might be good in and of themselves, but those things are keeping us from doing what's really important. We get so wrapped up in doing some, some pretty good things that we are missing our mission that we're getting confused on our identity and our mission. We've got to be able to say no to some things so that we can say yes to the right things. And then the last temptation recorded in Luke chapter 4. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down for here, for it is written. Satan's about to quote scripture to Jesus. You know, Satan quotes scripture, which is another lesson in itself. Just because someone's quoting scripture doesn't mean they're handling it right. But Satan says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Those weren't the only three temptations that Jesus encountered. I've heard someone say before, you know, Jesus was tempted three times by Satan. Jesus is tempted every way that we have been tempted. But Scripture here says that Satan left him for an opportune time. He's going to come back. He's going to hit him again. The temptation here is, you know, Jesus, you could do something that is so spectacular. You could be the golden boy. You could have everyone applauding you. 
Here's how he, he poses that same temptation to us. You are what people think of you. You are what you have, you are what you do, and you are what people think of you. So you need to be spectacular. You need to be amazing. You need to please people. You need to get the approval of other people at all costs because God forbid that someone should think less of you than they should be thinking of you. you know, so whatever I have to do in order to be popular, I'm going to do it. But I want you to think for just a minute about how unpopular Jesus was with a lot of people. And we, we know that, of course, but I want you to think about how many people Jesus disappointed in his lifetime. You know, the crowd came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we want you to be our king, because if you were our king, we could defeat all of our enemies. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to be that kind of king. He disappoints the crowd. The religious leaders of the day, the, the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they say, you know, you're not uh, living up to our expectations of righteousness and holiness. You're hanging out with the wrong kind of people. And we want you to quit hanging out with those people. And Jesus said, no. And he disappointed the religious rulers of the day. His mother and his brothers come to him one day. They say, Jesus, we don't think you understand what you're doing here. We, we think you're kind of out of your mind. We want you to come back home. And Jesus said, no. He disappointed his family. Herod said, perform a miracle. I want to be impressed. Jesus said, no. He disappointed the powers that be. James and John said, we want to sit on your right and your left. Jesus said, no. You don't understand what you're asking. He disappointed his very best friends. Jesus disappointed a lot of people while he was here on earth. But he never disappointed his father. He never disappointed God. He wasn't really concerned with human approval, obviously. He ends up on a cross. He knew it was pleasing God. He knew what his mission was. We've got to learn to say no when we need to say no. You are not what you have. You are not what you do. You are not defined by what people think you are. That is not your identity. We need to remind ourselves 150 times a day, here's our identity. You are a child of God. That is my identity. That is who I am. You know, you think about Jesus in his lifetime and him being able to say no at just the right times. He didn't just start his ministry with, with three great no's. He actually ended his ministry as well with, with a pretty powerful no. He's on the cross. The crowd is shouting, you saved others, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And Jesus says, no. That last great no became God's great yes. Now, it looked like the cross originally was a, a triumph of no, when actually it's God's yes to forgiveness and grace and life and love, salvation, 
You know, the world sometimes makes it hard to say no to certain things. We're always being tempted, you know, do too much. Overextend, buy too much, overcommit. In order to say yes to God, there are some things we're going to have to say no to. So before I close, I want to make sure that we all have this as a group. I want to make sure that we all understand this. So I want us all to say no together. But I want you to say it like you did when you were two years old, okay? I want you to say it with conviction. I want you to say it like you mean it. I'm going to count to three, then we're all going to say no together. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three, no! That's actually pretty good. It's actually a little better than I thought that was going to be. We probably ought to pray. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy for us to get in over our heads in so many ways. We get burdened, and we get overcommitted, and we get tired, and then, then we get resentful. Father, would you give us the courage to say no to whatever appetite, to whatever desire, to whatever decision that puts anything in your place. Help us, God, to, to make space for you to make space for each other, to make space for the kingdom. Help us to believe you when you identified us and help us to see ourselves and realize I am a child of God. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.